please turn with me to Romans chapter 6 and then flip a couple of pages ahead to Romans chapter 12. And we'll read first just the 17th verse from Romans chapter 6 and then we're going to look at the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 12, but I want to begin the reading actually in chapter 11. And here's the reason I want to do this, and I, I really want for this to, I hope, settle into your, into your brains. Chapter and verse divisions are a later invention given to us by the church as a way to help us navigate the 66 books in our Bibles. But originally, things moved directly from chapter 11 into chapter 12. And I point this out to you because what I want you to see is this. When Paul gets to the end of his explanation of the gospel, when Paul gets to the end of his exploration of the gospel, there's nothing left to do but sing. There's nothing left to do but sing. And before he moves on to the therefore and and all of the practical outworkings of this gospel that he has been presenting to these Romans, he writes this doxology. There's nothing left to do but sing when you're gripped as Paul was by the beauty and wonder and glory of the gospel of the kingdom. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. So with that little introductory word, let's read verse 17. And then beginning at the end of chapter 11, read through verse 2 of chapter 12. But thanks be to God. You see, there's a song. That's a song. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were, remember last week, delivered. And then chapter 11, beginning at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word, Uh, We're asking again for your help because we need it. Please, Jesus, somehow, in the foolishness of preaching, as we seek to think your thoughts after you, somehow set before us the riches of this grace that Paul has been at pains to describe for us and capture our hearts with it. 
We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. At a, uh, what I must tell you is just a delightful conversation last week after the service. Um, a woman who was visiting with us uh, from Canada who's not here, so I'm not going to embarrass her by telling this story, at least I don't think she is, came out, uh, th- you know, th- was leaving, and she was the first one out, and, and she, she grabbed me and she said, and she was, she was very happy. <laughs> She's very happy. Now, look, I'm not telling you this. If you want to pat me on the back after the service, that would be fine. I welcome pats and hugs and all of that stuff and and encouraging emails on Monday morning if you'd like to do that. Um, I'm not saying this so that you'll pat me on the back or anything else because uh, I fully understand who I am and I fully understand what I am. But this woman came out of the service last week, and she was so encouraged. She said, I'm 73 years old. She'd really be mad if she heard me tell this story. I'm 73 years old. I have been around these things my whole life. I read the Bible with my parents as a child at the dinner table. And my whole life, for 73 years, I have struggled with assurance. And your sermon gave me assurance. And come back, Jesus. Job done. Let's go home. I can't tell you how gratifying it is to have someone say, I found such great assurance. In that sermon. And I thought this week about this little conversation and remembered myself that what Paul is dealing with in chapters 5 through 8 is this very matter of assurance. And what is the nature of the assurance that he's seeking to convey to us and pass on to us? What he's seeking to convey to us and pass on to us who have come to Jesus, who have embraced Jesus, who have accepted that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, the one who receives gladly and embraces and offers himself freely and gladly to any who would come to him. What he says to us is this salvation is sufficient for everything. It's big enough for everything. My death on the cross is big enough for your justification. I know these are technical terms, but they're Bible terms. And we want to to build a gospel vocabulary. We want to know what these things mean. And what it means to be a Christian is that because of Jesus, As we sang in 510 and as we sang in the power of the cross, because of Jesus, I'm accepted. I'm forgiven. I am clothed in his righteousness. He has given me the garments of righteousness. I am reconciled to him. I am declared innocent. I am forgiven. I am safe. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. No threat of judgment. The penalty of the law is paid in the cross of Christ for my justification. But it doesn't end there, does it? 
It's also this power that sin is. And what we've been looking at is this work of sanctification. Jesus, in his death on the cross, secures all of the blessings of life. Every blessing. Every benefit. And one of the blessings that he secures is new life. And this work of sanctification is this progressive work, this ongoing work by which and in which more and more I am set free from the power of sin. And the final and consummating and glorious act of Jesus is my glorification when he comes back and this poor broken down body is transformed It is fully restored, remarried to my soul. Unless I happen to be alive at the day when Jesus returns and then body and soul all together, I get completely transformed and reformed and restored. And my brothers and sisters who died ahead of me come out of the tombs and they are reformed and remade and reconstituted and their souls are reunited with those bodies and we are forever, never ever again confronted with the problem of sin. It is banished forever. That's the work of Jesus. For his people, for you if you're a Christian today. And this sweet, sweet dear woman who for 73 years, as so many of us do, who has struggled with assurance, does God really love me? Is God really for me? Am I really safe and secure in his embrace? Came out of the service last week and said, thank you so much for this grand, glorious depiction of this work of Jesus for me. For me. Thank you for assurance. You understand, it doesn't come from me. It comes from Jesus. Jesus is the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says that. And risen, raised, standing before you in the preaching of the gospel says it yet again. So what is this whole thing about? Well, it's about assurance. It's about the fact that this gospel really is sufficient for us. And what we're looking at right now in this verse and then in chapter 12 in these first couple of verses is how, how, Does change come to me? I've said this to you. I'll say it again. I am not ashamed to say this to you again. My wife would like for me to be much different than I am. I would like to be much different than I am. Is there anybody in this room who wouldn't like to be different? Now, let me just say parenthetically, if, if, if you don't want to be changed, if you don't think that there's something in you or about you that needs to be different, please, I'll, I'll schedule the appointment right after worship. We need to have a chat. 
And I would suggest to you, if you don't do that, if you don't schedule an appointment with me, talk to those who are closest to you and ask them, Am I a paragon of virtue? Am I the incarnation of mercy and compassion and love and justice? Ask them. Is there anyone in this room who in his heart of hearts doesn't recognize the need to be changed? The need to be different. And so the question is, how do I change? How does that happen to me? And here's where I want to drill down into this 17th verse just a little bit more. And then I want to drill down into the first couple of verses of Romans 12. I want to say in the first place that if I do recognize that I need to be changed, if I do recognize that I'm in this process of being sanctified, this business of being freed more and more from the power of sin, what that suggests very strongly is that something has already happened to me. Something has already happened to me. And I just want to remind us of this, that where Paul begins in this 17th verse is in saying to these people, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And I suggested to you again that the right reading is the word delivered, to which you were delivered. If you are a Christian this morning and you understand that there's something going on with you, that there is this ongoing need of being changed, let me just suggest to you, the reason you know that and the reason you wrestle with that and the reason that you struggle in the midst of that is because something has happened to you and you have been delivered from bondage in sin. You've been delivered from slavery in sin. The Bible uses all of these metaphors. They're remarkable metaphors. This one is the metaphor of slavery to describe this thing that God must do if I am to be a Christian. God must deliver me. The verb is in the passive voice. What that means is that I'm the subject of an action that happens to me and it happens because some power outside of me has made it happen. I was delivered from something. I was delivered from slavery. That's one of the metaphors. The other metaphors that are used in the scriptures are the metaphor of death and resurrection. Paul uses it earlier in this chapter. You died to sin. You were buried that you might be raised to newness of life. He uses it in Ephesians 2. You who were dead in trespass and sin, God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, made you alive. And the other imagery that is used in the scriptures is the imagery of birth or new birth. Remember the conversation in John 3 that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was a teacher of Israel, who knew everything and knew nothing. He's the teacher of Israel. He's called in that text the ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. It's this honorable place where wise people set policy for the rest of the nation. And Jesus and Nicodemus are in this conversation. And 
And Nicodemus says to Jesus, you know, there's something going on with you. It's pretty obvious by the things you're doing. And Jesus, as he does so often, completely shifts the focus of the conversation right back to Nicodemus and says, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's, it's the imagery of new birth, you see? What does that say? What, what does that say about me in this condition, imprisoned in sin, a slave to sin? It's, it, I'm dead. I'm dead. There's no life there. Something has to be conceived so that it might gestate and grow and so that there might be a birth. And I guarantee you there's not one person in this room who is the author of his or her own existence. If you are, I want to meet you. Right? It's the analogy of conception and gestation and birth. And that is a thing that happens to you. You can't account for it in and of yourself. You hear this morning, you know, if you, if you find yourself in the midst of this struggle, you find that you're on the path, you find that you're leaning into things and wrestling against things and struggling with things and occasionally plagued by things because of doubts and fear and guilt and shame and all the rest. You know what all those are? Those are all indications that you are alive. I've said this before, but it cannot be said enough because we have such tender consciences, so many of us, and we need to know that the struggle is not an indication of judgment and condemnation. The struggle is an indication of life. You're alive. And I will say to you again, and I feel always that this has to be said, and I say it I I really do want to say it pastorally and lovingly and gently. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you are like Nicodemus. You may know your Bible backwards and forwards. You may have a theology. You may have a lot of knowledge in your head. You may know everything. But at this critical juncture concerning this critical matter, you're not alive yet. And you need to have something happen to you and only God the Holy Spirit can effect that new birth if you don't know what I'm talking about again in all seriousness please call me so that we can talk about this what the theologians what the Bible in fact refers to as we talk about these things is regeneration that's the word that's the word for your vocabulary regeneration recreation rebeginning new birth and it is regeneration that sets a person on this path of sanctification it is regeneration that breaks the bondage of sin that breaks the prison house of sin that sets people free and releases them to move in the direction of jesus Regeneration leads inevitably to sanctification. And so I encourage you, encourage you to reflect upon this. 
Am I alive? I don't mean physically. I mean spiritually. Am I alive in the midst of this struggle? And so that's the first thing for us to recognize. Let's not lose sight of that. Something has to happen to me. I need to be delivered. I need to be delivered from something. But then here is the second thing. And we laid the foundation for this last week. I'm not only delivered from something, freed from slavery, but I am delivered to something. I am handed over to something. And that's what is so striking about this passage. Chapter 6, verse 17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves, having been freed, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed or the form of doctrine is the way some of the passages or some of the translations will render it. The word form, the form of doctrine or the form of teaching. That's a great word. It's, it's the word morphe. Impress your friends at lunch tomorrow. Morphe. We use it. It's come over into our language, hasn't it? We say something has morphed into something else. Right? If something morphs into something else, it changes form. It was one thing. It has become another thing. It's morphed. It's a word, interestingly, that is used in Philippians. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It's a word that's used to describe what happened to Jesus at the incarnation. Right? Though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, clutched at, jealously treasured and protected. But he emptied himself. You want to know what Christianity is? This is what Christianity is. We want to know what following Jesus is? This is what following Jesus is. Emulating Jesus who existed in the form of God emptied himself, not of his divinity. Be careful about this. He didn't empty himself of his divinity. The transfiguration makes that very clear. Remember on the mountain when the, when the divinity of Jesus, having been veiled by his humanity, was disclosed and there was light everywhere and his glory was seen by Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John? He doesn't empty himself of his divinity. He doesn't empty himself of his glory. He empties himself of his privilege, of his rights, his prerogatives. And he takes the form of a servant. He exchanges forms. He morphs, if you will. Barbara and I were sitting on the beach last evening as we as we almost always do on Saturday evening, to decompress. It's a time for me to decompress. And Barb is going to deliver a devotional to some folks at a shower, and, and, and she's going to try to give some words of encouragement to this soon-to-be bride. And, and the things that she's talking about, I guarantee you, 
and not things this bride is going to want to hear. His marriage isn't about you. It's about him. It's about emulating Jesus. In emptying yourself of rights and privileges and prerogatives and taking the form of a servant and considering others as more important than yourself and putting their needs and interests and concerns ahead of your own. Did you know that was Christianity? Maybe you want to rethink this. That is what Jesus did. He morphed. He changed forms, you see. He was in the form of God and he took to himself a humanity and in taking that real humanity to himself, not at the expense of his divinity, he took the form of a servant. He took the form of a servant. That's the word that Paul uses here. The form of teaching. The form of doctrine. You see what Paul is saying? I alluded to this last week. I suggested it last week. What Paul is saying is that when you were delivered, I'll use this language, I hope it makes sense to you, when you were delivered from your bondage and sin and slavery, you were delivered from a whole way of looking at and thinking about and interpreting the world around you, you were delivered over into a different form of looking at and interpreting the nature of reality, including God and you and all of the implications of the existence of God for you. You were delivered over to a form of teaching that stands over against the form of teaching to which you had formerly subscribed and which you had formerly embraced, whether Jew or Gentile. And I think Paul has both in view here whether it was the Jews who thought that they could find acceptance based upon being members of the covenant family, based upon circumcision, based upon the law, or Gentiles who had this marvelous and wonderful heritage of Greek philosophy and wisdom and all of these different systems that sought to interpret the world around them, whether Jew or Gentile, you were delivered from all of that and delivered into a form of teaching that stands over against all of it. It is different from it. It's a new form. It's a new form. And what is that form of teaching? What is it? It's the gospel. It's the gospel in all of its fullness. It's the whole counsel of God. You remember Acts chapter 20 when Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. Before he goes to Jerusalem with some suspicion that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to encounter trouble. The Holy Spirit had communicated that to him. Paul meets with these elders and says to them, I withheld nothing from you that would be for your good, but declared to you the whole counsel of God, the whole gospel for the whole person, or as one person has put it, the whole Bible for the whole Christian, the whole thing. There is a form of teaching here in the gospel, in the whole counsel of God, 
in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. And it is that to which I have been delivered. It is that form to which I'm being conformed. And so jump over with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul now talks about transformation. I've been enslaved. I've been imprisoned. I've been dead. I've had no life. Life has been imparted. I've been raised from death to life. I've been set free from this prison house. And I've been delivered over to something, not just from something, but to something. I've been delivered to a new Lord, a whole new way of looking at and thinking about and interpreting life. And so how does change come? How does change come? Look, this is, this, is, this is hard, okay? It's not hard to understand, I don't think, but I do believe it is hard to put into practice. When, when folks are in trouble, and this happens for me as a pastor, when, when folks are in trouble and, and they, they have a particular struggle with a particular sin, they want, they want a technique, They want a technique. This is the problem I'm having. Give me the aspirin that deals with this problem. Give me the technique. Give me an accountability group. Give me a small group. Call me three times a day to make sure that I don't fall into this again. No, you see, when Paul responds to this problem of our need, he wants to take us to a different place. He wants to take us to the place where real change begins to happen, where real change happens progressively. It happens along this path of sanctification. It happens through the course of my whole lifetime. It happens sometimes so incrementally that neither I nor those around me can detect that it's going on at all. But this is where it happens. It happens, having been delivered to a form of doctrine. In Romans 12, verse 2, Paul says, Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. By the renewing of your minds. Let me be clear about this. The mind is not the ultimate thing. The heart is. Do you remember that Paul said you were obedient from the heart to the form of doctrine to which you were delivered? The mind is not the ultimate thing, but the mind is the indispensable thing if change is going to occur in your life and mine. Let me point out some things to you from this first verse. Just some things about these words. Maybe you've heard this before. It's helpful to be reminded of them. The first and second verses. Number one, Paul says, in view of God's mercies. With God's mercies ever before you. Okay? In view of God's mercies. What are God's mercies? The gospel that he's just been unpacking. 
he's, he's saying, never lose sight of it. Keep it always in view. Eat it, drink it, breathe it, digest it. In view of God's mercies, present your bodies, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There is that word present again. Do you remember from a couple of weeks ago? Present and go on presenting. Keep these mercies ever in view and present yourselves to God. Do not be conformed. Some of you know what this word means. It means do not be pressed into the mold of the world. You've been freed from that. Remember Romans 6? What good was it doing you when you were pressed into that mold? Don't be conformed to that. You've been freed from it. Don't be pressed into that mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Some things here about this word in particular. Number one, the word transformed includes this word morphe transformed. It's the word from which we get our word metamorphosis. Metamorphe. Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. What happens when a butterfly spins a cocoon or is it chrysalis? The moths do one thing, the butterflies do the other. I can never keep them straight. They spin this thing, a chrysalis or or cocoon. And what transpires as a result of that? There is a metamorphosis. There is a transformation. Metamorphe. A new form, you see. A new form begins to emerge. And here's the second thing. The verb is a present participle, okay? Here's what it means. Be being transformed. Be being transformed. An event happened. Something happened. You were regenerated. You were freed. You were set on this path of sanctification. But sanctification doesn't happen in an instant. It happens progressively. Be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's the third thing about this verb. It is again in the passive voice. There is still something happening to me. Be being transformed. How does it happen? Happen. It happens as my mind is renewed, as my mind is changed as my mind is reshaped. The mind, your mind, my mind, my soul is like jello. If you don't put jello in a mold, it goes everywhere. It goes everywhere. And my mind is constantly in need of being remolded, reshaped. So that I see the world the way God sees the world. I understand reality the way God understands reality. I interpret life and all of its ups and downs in the way that God interprets life and and all of its ups and downs. And the way my mind gets constantly renewed and reshaped and reformed 
is by having my mind return again and again to this form of teaching which stands over and against everything else. Form. Metamorphosis. Transformation through the renewal of my mind. You know what's interesting about this? This word renew. It's a fascinating word because it comes in classical literature. It comes from the world of the arts. It comes from the world of the arts. What are we saying here? When the mind is renewed, there is an emerging work of art. A thing of beauty begins to emerge. Now look, let me just suggest to you that this this notion actually is all over the scriptures. It's not unique to Romans 6 or Romans 12. What Paul is, is encouraging us about is that we've been delivered into a whole new way of thinking about reality. He's suggesting to us that real change and real transformation comes not through a technique, not through an accountability group. Real change begins to happen as my mind is molded and shaped by the word of God, by the gospel of God, by the whole counsel of God. I said to you last week, eat this book and keep eating this book. Read it and reread it. And seek to understand it and make a lifelong study of it. Again, not so that you might master it, but so that it might master you. This is how the Word of God works. It reforms. It reshapes. It has power. Think of all of the passages. Think of the creation. This is my favorite one. Think of the creation and how the creation comes into existence. It comes into existence as God speaks and his word connects with his spirit and word and spirit come together and order comes out of chaos and glory fills up emptiness and beauty replaces ugliness. Think about Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of sinners or stand in the way of scoffers or sit in the seat of the wicked, but his delight is in the words of the Lord. And on his words, his law, he meditates day and night. And what is the result? Life is the result. Life is the result. He becomes like a tree planted next to streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season, and it is always green. Life. Think of Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true. They are righteous. And then get this punchline. They are more to be desired than gold. I have to ask myself, Mike, do you you value your Bible 
more than your next paycheck, more than your bank account. Do I value this form of teaching, this form of doctrine, this book? Do I value, do I see life in this book, in the things that are true about Jesus and who he is and what he has done and all of its implications for the totality of my life? Do I prize that as being more precious than gold? If I listen to Psalm 1, if I listen to Psalm 19, it is life-giving, life-transforming for me to give myself to these things, to eat this book. John 17, 17, Jesus said to his disciples, or didn't say to his disciples, said to his father as he prayed for his disciples, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Your word. The word Jesus is truth. The word that Jesus has given is truth. It is his word, the truth of it, the power of it that brings the beginnings of real transformation and change to my life. I mentioned a minute ago this word renewal. The renewal of the mind comes from the realm of the artistic and artists. It reminds me, I don't know if I've shared this or if you know this story, but it reminds me of the story of Michelangelo's David which is regarded by so many people as the most brilliant and as close to perfect piece of sculpture anywhere to be found. Did you know that the David was crafted from a flawed piece of stone? Do you know who you are? Flawed deeply. And in the hands of a master craftsman, by his word, he is producing a thing of indescribable beauty and loveliness. Eat this book. It is life for you and for me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you don't give us over to death, to prison, to denial but you give us over to life, to an understanding of yourself and an understanding of ourselves and an understanding of the world in which we live that reforms and reshapes and renews and remakes us after the image of Jesus, our glorious elder brother. I pray for myself and I pray for this people that you would give us grace to devour your life-giving words and to have our minds and then the rest of our lives altered and shaped 
more and more by it to the praise of your glorious name. Amen.